This episode is sponsored by Trade Choice Carpet and Flooring. Trade Choice are one of the largest independent distributors of floor coverings and products. They specialize in carpet tiles, carpets, vinyls, LVT screens, tools, everything you would need to run a flooring business. With 13 branches, including the Newcastle one that I visited from Glasgow all the way down to Southampton. They've got 24 hour access ordering via their website. So if you want to set up an account or find your nearest branch, visit tradechoice.com. Now sit back, enjoy the show, and we look forward to seeing you here again soon. On this week's show, I've got Carl Nickel from West Coast Flooring Company. And I said, well, what are you looking for? And they said, well, we need to do 90,000 square meters of flooring inside 15 days. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's going to take some doing. <laughs> Better known later in years was Gary Lineker. And uh, I got to know him quite well as, a, as a, a young kid. I was playing football at the time and I played for Knox County um, from the age of 10. And eventually, I shan't name names, but eventually they set up within a couple of miles from where we are now. Sit back, enjoy the show. You are the oxygen to this show, so please hit any subscribe button, follow on social media, and we'll just keep this going. Welcome, Carl, to the UK Flooring Podcast. Um, First question I'd like to know before we even start about flooring or anything of that, I would like to know who's Carl Nichols? Who's Carl Nichols? Right, it's a long story, as you can imagine. (laughs) Carl Nickel was born January the 5th, 1958. With a quick uh, maths, you'll realise that um, I become the new 65 the day after tomorrow, um, which in this world is 66. Um, I grew up in a terraced house in Leicester in the middle of Westcoats area. I went to um, a couple of primary schools before ending up at um, Westcoats Secondary Modern. Um, in my growing up process, I worked on the Leicester market. I was a little claim to fame was that Barry Lineker was on the stall next door to us. His son, um, who became better known later in years, was Gary Lineker. And uh, I got to know him quite well as, a, as a, a young kid. I was playing football at the time and I played for Knox County um, from the age of 10. And I was on Knox County's books um, and joined them as a one of four apprentices in um, March 1974. There was four apprentices that joined and there was only keeping three. Um, on one particular night, we were playing Liverpool at Manor Lane and I wasn't in the side, but I was called in fairly late in the day and offered uh, hold I was playing by um, Jimmy Cyril and Ronnie Fenton at the time, who were the manager of the first team, because it was Liverpool that were involved in the um, the reserves as well. So um, they played me in that game and uh, I actually got the winner on that night, which was a cold, wet Wednesday night and I was 16 at the time. Um, the next day, which we knew, they were going to release one of the four apprentices. Um, I was the only one that played in the game and I was first into the meeting. And uh, when I went into the meeting, um, I expected to be told that uh, I was going to be retained. So unfortunately, it was a bit of a knockback. They told me that... Um, I wasn't being retained um, as a 16-year-old. Uh, sorry, as a 16-year-old that had had a, um, you know, I, I could talk for myself in them days. Um, we could, and um, I was asked if I wanted to. Um, well, I was asked, told I was not being retained, and to pick my kit up, and uh, I was leaving, um, which was a bit of a bombshell. Um, after that, I wondered what I was going to do. There was no emails. I couldn't let anybody know that I'd been released. So I decided to join the Royal Navy. Um, Three weeks after that, I had been down and done all the interviewing myself, um, done the medical. And three weeks after that, I left home with a bag and uh, walked out of the terraced house, went down to Leicester Railway Station and made my way to um, Ipswich, um, which was HMS Ganges, where I joined up as a 16-year-old. You know, it was a bit of a learning curve. After that, I became a stores accountant, um, passed my all my exams to the stores, and I was sort of sent up to Scotland, HMS Lochinvar, which was uh, based under the Fourth Road Bridge. But because of my football 
connections. I was playing for the Navy at the time at the age of 16, and I was being transported down to Portsmouth pretty much every weekend to play in the Navy side and the Navy captain, the Navy under-19s. It wasn't long before I moved from um, Locking Bar and I went down and changed uh, connection, changed direction of my branch and I became an electrician and I spent a lot of time at HMS Collingwood, which was the largest naval base in the country, which is at Fairham. That was at the age of 16. I then played in the, I was captain of the under-19s at Collingwood and I played in the first team at Collingwood uh, when they won the Navy Cup in 1975 and also we won the Navy Junior Cup in the same week. So a couple of big uh, occasions. I was then sent to sea on HMS Bulwark, which is an aircraft carrier. We went out to the Far East, and as I went out to the West Indies um, and America and uh, around there, um, after which I came back and I was quite doing a lot of physical work and I got interested in the Royal Navy field gun, which was run at Hell's Court. Um, I joined the HMS, I joined the Royal Navy Field Gun in 1977 when I ran number six, which is the uh, bottom of screw and the guy that put all the tension on the wire to get 18 guys and two and a half ton of equipment over the um, over the uh, chasm um, out to the um, enemy wall and back um, before it was all collapsed and then the run home. So that was absolutely brilliant. Um, and then I'd never intended to stay in the Navy and I was always intending to come out at 21. Um, so I, I left the Navy on my 21st birthday, um, 5th of January, 1979. And what am I going to do? <laughs> um, I was invited by the post office to go and um, be, do an exam um, to become a postman, which I did, did the exam took me about 10 minutes. The exam was for half an hour. Finished the exam, came out, and I thought I'd done something wrong because I was the first one out of the exam, and I thought I couldn't have passed it. So I was told I'd passed it, and I could become a postman, at which time I was captured um, by a, um, a guy by the name of Dougie Arnold, who became quite well-known in the flooring world. Um, he was the chairman, managing director for a company called Hinkley Flooring at the time. Um, he was later to become um, president of the CFA, um, and he took me on board, and uh, I learned a lot from him in the 12 months that I was with him. Um, one of the big things was that um, I learned from him was uh, never do a job. You know, there's no such thing as a bad job. Um, there's only a bad price. So uh, that that brought my imagination. And uh, the other thing he said was there's no... There's no book telling you how to do this. It's really your own decision. It, it's, a, it's an area where you can make money in and don't be embarrassed to make money. Um, with that in mind, um, some 18 months later, um, due to um, personal circumstances, um, I left um, Inky Flooring at the time and uh, I went to work, well, I went to work for Polyfloor at the time who we were called James Halsteads. Um, I was working as the rep for um, James Halstead in the Birmingham area. I was a young rep of 21 plus. And it, we all got Morris Morris um, towels, uh, red Morris towels to drive around it. And uh, it was quite daunting going across to Birmingham at that age and introducing yourself um, at the door of the architect's premises and basically um, saying that you're from James Halstead. And they're saying, who's James Halstead? <laughs> and I said, James Halstead, we're the final manufacturers from Manchester. Sorry, we don't know you can come in and fill the sample we book up. So I quickly got a bit cheesed up with that. I was probably a bit young for that sort of uh, job at the time. And uh, I had bought myself a house um, and I put it on the market. Um, and I was going to make about £6,000 out of the house. So I thought, what am I going to do with it? I went to see the bank. So I went and seen the bank, which was Midland Bank at the time. They said, we don't suggest, I told them what I was going to do. I said, look, I'm, I'm going to go into flooring. Um, I um, like the idea of um, setting my own prices and making money. And it was a recession at the time. And the bank manager said, listen, Carl, 
I don't advise this. It's probably a crazy decision. And if I was you, I'd keep you £6,000 in the bank and basically do something else. But I told him, well, I'm not going to listen to his advice. I'm going to do it anyway. So I bought myself a pickup van. Um, it was a bit like a, well, a bit like a Ford Ranger, I suppose, in an older version. And it was all painted red. It looked like a circus van going to the floor in, uh, into, out into the floor in well. And I went, first thing I did was went across to um, Dougie Arnold and sat him down and said, look, Doug, I want you to be the first to hear this. Um, I'm setting up in com- competition. I'm setting up as a flooring contractor. Don't intend, well, I do intend to be a threat to you, but it's going to take a long time. You've been around a long time, but I want you to hear it from me because, you know, you're the guy that's brought me into the trade and I totally respect you. All I've got is a book with a few numbers in and I'll give it a go. In them days, there's no computers um, or anything like that. Um, he shook me and wished me all the best and we were friends ever since. Um, sadly, he died a few years ago, um, but he was, as I say, a very big influence in my life. Um, and then Westcoats, um, 1981, Westcoats was established and became a Liberty Company. Where did we start? I was living at my mum and dad's house, uh, semi-detached. I'd moved up from a terrace into a semi-detached, living in my mum and dad's. And I'd rented a house next door, which was in Broadston Lane East uh, in Leicester. Um, and I had a bedroom, um, back bedroom. And I was paying this guy, well, my friend of mine, paid him money rent for using his bedroom. Quickly um, became evident that I needed a store. So I took over his garage as well. About three months into that, I had a notification from the council saying that you can't have these articulated lorries dropping off boxes and boxes of vinyl tiles from Marley, um, which were by the pallet. And then I had to handball them in on a sat truck on a downward downhill to the garage, which meant it was a bad route coming back because they had to come uphill. And they were sort of, uh, what were they, 56 pounds a box. So they weren't the lightest of things. So... We uh, we stayed there for a while, and then we got notification from the council. The council said we've got to move. So what we're going to do now? This was a question. Um, so I looked around in the Elston area, um, and we found a place, Erith Road, which was um, a corner terraced house. It was an Indian cutting room, so it was in a bit of a state when I went to have a look at it. Um, but immediately I walked in, I could visualise a down downstairs storeroom and uh, an upstairs office. And um, the there was another bedroom, which I made into my sort of uh, bedroom suite, really. That was because uh, I was single at the time, so I made it nice and tidy. You know, so if I had invited guests, it was always uh, looking very respectable and a nice kitchen and a shower. Um, and we had a great, uh, great number of years working from there um, before we outgrown it. And we moved to um, St. Andrew's Road in um, again, Saccharine Lane, um, and we bought a big, large house with a um, shed on the side, big shed. So that's where we lasted for probably five or six years after that. Um, we developed, actually, the, the, the room, the Erith Road um, situation. I didn't sell that. I converted it into uh, flats, and then uh, eventually, when I had enough rent from it, I sold it as a, you know, as a source and uh, I bought the house, bought the place down at St. Andrew's Road. Got involved in a few properties, buying and buying and selling, which were very good at the time. Um, and really that helped me to set up um, the cash base, which um, West Coach is founded. We then moved um, to a new premises in Broughton Astley, which was a bit like moving out into the country for me because uh, I was always a city boy. And now we're going to Broughton Astley, which is uh, it's now the largest um, largest town in country, um, and that's where the um, we're building these units. So I bought a large unit across the road um, at, from where we are now, and we established ourselves from there. Um, and that's when the age of the computers came in. Now, unfortunately, unbeknown to me, I didn't know that the computers could, although they could do you a lot of good, they could also do you a lot of harm. And the younger the person that you brought in, the more harm that they could do. The older person didn't know too much about computers. Um, sadly, that was the case. And I had probably 
four or five people that were working for me at the time. Unfortunately, they were conspiring behind my back to set up another flooring organization and pinching lots of information off the off the screens. And eventually, I shan't name names, but eventually they set up within a couple of miles from where we are now. Um, that's not something, I mean, I've always been able to look somebody in the face and I've never been afraid to um, you know, shake anybody's hand. Um, and I can't ever remember doing anybody any wrongdoing. Uh, financially, you know, my word is my bond. And if somebody, you don't bite the hand that's feeds you, that's uh, always been my um, way of life. So Westcote continued to develop. And um, 1985, my son was born um, and he's now the managing director of the company, the group. Yeah. Um, and uh, he he's um, done a great job. Um, we were doing work down in London and um, we decided that uh, we needed to open a, well, find a, uh, find a decent um, manager down there, um, which is where I um, located Carl Harper, who you probably know. Um, he's, he's the president of the CFA at the moment. Um, yeah. I introduced him to Kirk, my son. They got on really well and uh, he's been working with us for six years, doing a great job down in London, developing that, it's growing. And, um, you know, it's been a really good acquisition to the company. Um, we've got about 17 people down there, um, floor layers and uh, staff, um, along with about 26 in the Midlands. Um, we're currently looking at the possibility of branching out. We've got a large job in York, um, a prison, the third prison we've done in about 18 months, um, the, the, the range from about two million pounds, one of them, one and a half million pounds. This one's 750,000 pounds, but it's in York, so it's not ideal logistically. Um, however, we have found a team to a team of good guys to do the job, and um, we're looking at bringing in a manager um, to potentially move into the Yorkshire area and uh, have a satellite office up there um, and do some work in that that region. Um, we have some, you know, we have some really good systems within the company. Um, we track all the jobs and manage all the jobs. We know financially where they stack up at all times, and that holds us in good stead um, to know where we are on a, you know, almost week by week basis, but month by month basis um, is where we are. Um, we liked as a company, I've always had the, as I said earlier, you know, I've always um, shook people's hand and I've always been a person, a man of my word. And that includes paying contractors on time and also uh, manufacturers and suppliers on time. Um, I don't think there's a supplier in the country or a fitter in the country that could say they've not been paid uh, in accordance with the terms that Westcoats operate um, from which I'm very proud of. And it, um, when I'm in conversations with um, building contractors, um, it's something that I I offer as a selling point, really, on behalf of the company. Because, uh, as I say, we don't we don't work in an overdraft. We're a positive uh, cash reach company. And, um, you know, I'm very proud of that. You know, from the age of 16, with my um, 3,000, 6,000 pounds, of which 3,000 pounds went on a van. So uh, in uh, 43 years, we've gone from there to where we are now. Um, if we go well, back to you... the, the van, Carl, um, when you got that van, did you were you out on the tills for a certain amount of time or did you bring guys in straight away? How well, did you? What, how yeah, did well, in the one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the things about the, um, the van was that... Um, I, I brought in a – when I went to see Doug Arnold, I did say to him that there is going to be one infringement in your business, that Tony Cook, who's one of your fitters, is going to join me as a director. Um, and he was the floor layer of the two. I did the administration paperwork. I never actually did floor laying, although, you know, anybody that's run their own business, I've, I've latexed, I've, I've fitted carpet tiles, I've fitted sheet. Um, not to the best of, uh, not as good as I would expect uh, my fitters to do it. But when needs must, I was always prepared to turn my hand to it and do whatever was necessary to uh, to get the job done, really. Um, yeah. 
I love that. I love that. that very, very similar story for me. Not certainly as long as you've suggested, but uh, when I set my flooring business up, I, I could do some of it, but I employed people to bring in. So I love that bit of story. And exactly the same. Uh, so many bits of the story sort of hit a note with me. Uh, we had a sanding business where um, we had a couple of guys um, feathering out lacquer and feathering out rollers over about three to four month period and ended up the police recovered it all um, and then again set up in direct competition three miles down the road so loads of bits of that story it, it seems to be quite a not a regular occurrence but not a, not an abnormal occurrence um, so just at, at West Coast Flying Company now um, apart from the, I mean how long does would the prison job normally take, you know, like maybe the one you've just got? I mean, is that a year? Is it two years? What, what well, sort of? We're scheduled to do it 21 weeks from the start date. But the start, start date is next week. Well, okay. we've not had the programme yet. <laughs> so, yeah, I would have, although it's 21 weeks programme, we believe that it's probably going to run into 30 weeks from the end of, um, well, beginning of February. Okay. Um, yeah, and if, so and if you ever, have you ever dabbled in because you said most fun, all of your work is commercial, but have you ever dabbled in standard residential carpets or you know, flooring or, or what well, was the rate? The only time I've had a dabble really was when I was at Eris Road. I bought myself, I had a contracts manager who was my uncle who was, um, you know. God rest his soul, but um, he, he joined me and uh, he was very full of ideas. And one of the ideas I put to him was that um, I was going to have a domestic carpet site called, um, home, I didn't think it was Home Choose Carpet, but it was Carpet Shop at Home. Um, and he, he thought it was a great idea. Um, so I sold him the idea and he was saying yes to everything. And I told him I was going to get this van. It's all going to be racked out. And then I have all the all the um, carpets hanging in the van. And, you know, he said, yeah, really good idea. I says, but the other thing to it is that you're going to be the man that's driving this van and selling the carpets. <laughs> he didn't think that was such a good idea. <laughs> so he, although he tried it, he didn't last that long, to be fair. And the biggest problem with domestic is, you know, the value of the job and the amount you have to do and the organisation of it. You know, it's uh, it's quite frightening. You know, it, it, it's hard enough on contract work, um, organising rooms that have got no furniture in and nobody living there. But for, to do Mrs Smith's uh, bedroom, um, you know, carpet um, for a fee um, is, you know, the, it, it's just, you know, you just, how do you cost it? For a start, it's just one of these where I, I couldn't really get my head around. You know, the fitter would be phoning phone me up and say, can you come and give me a hand move the bed? Can you get the bed back in later in the day? Um, and, uh, yeah, that's what we did. But it wasn't for us, really. I mean, we've never really gone into that side of things. The only thing nearest to that we've gone into is education. We, we have an education manager that deals with schools um, and health, and he does all the end-user work. Um, so he's he's constantly sending mail shots out to schools, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, we've just had a, a major amount of rain. I, when he came in yesterday morning, I said, you need to get this, um, you need to get your mail shut out about flooding because this was one thing. I, I mean, we were getting loads of flooding this time last year, loads of flooding work. And I said to him yesterday morning, you need to get your, your mail shot out about the floods. Five minutes later, he comes back into the office and he said, I want you to give me my lottery numbers because I've just had somebody ring me up. They want me to go down and have a look. They've just had the classroom flooded and it's got to be done by Friday. <laughs> so we're on it today. <laughs> They're the nice jobs. You know, as I say, you know, there's no such thing as a, a bad job. There's only a bad price and uh, all the good jobs, you know, everything's possible. That's always been my philosophy in life. There's never, a, there's always a solution for everything. There's not, the only solution I can't give you is a solution for death. But everything else has got a solution. So when a manufacturer tells me they can't get me something next Wednesday, but it's going to cost. Yeah. You know, whether it's £1,000 or £10,000, it's going to cost. All I want to know is can I have it next Wednesday? You know, and it can be it can be done. You know, so this is the, um, this, this is the way that I work. I always look for solutions. 
Um, I'm not a negative person, and uh, there's always a solution at the end of the at the end of the day for everything. And uh, yeah, I love that. And obviously, you've fitted millions and millions and millions of um, meters over the years um, as a, as a company. Is there one job that stands out to you that you're super proud of that you could sort of say what it was and, and why, you know, that, you know, if you, if you had to shut the company today, that job would be, you know, that was the pinnacle. Is there anything you can think of that's, you know, really sets sets everything off? Yeah, probably. I mean, one of the big ones, um, which I was heavily involved with, was um, when we went into COVID, early COVID, and we got the first warnings of the problems that uh, China had, had or, um, and it, COVID was coming over, the government got heavily involved and they wanted to quickly get things organised so that we'd got the necessary hospitals. Um, I was approached by um, a builder um, to see whether I could set up something for them with regards to the Nightingale Hospital in Birmingham. And I said, well, what are you looking for? And they said, well, we need to do 90,000 square metres of flooring inside 15 days. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's going to take some doing. <laughs> so I I said, well, we're going to need more than one team, one company. So they, they managed to get three companies involved and we're working around the clock. I Because work had dried up, I managed to put together a team in a relatively short period of time of 20 guys. When you go onto building sites, they insist that you wear yellow vests. Yeah. I went to the meeting, I said, look, my guys cannot wear yellow vests. I said, well, it's building site, we've got to wear yellow vests. I said, well, no, <laughs> I am going to be the, I'm going to be on site, I'm going to drive the forklift, and I'm going to have four teams. I'm going to have a red team, green team, blue team, gray team, I think it was. And they're all going to wear shirts. The reason for this is because, you know, you've probably been to the NEC, but if you've seen it empty, you know, you can hardly see from one side of the hall to the other. And all I wanted to know when the red team wanted something, that they told me the red team wanted something and I could take my you know, um, truck over there and make sure they got it. I was the one that was loading the vinyl up. I was, we, it wasn't being fully bonded. It was being welded, but it wasn't being fully bonded. And we were getting the material to the guys. And, and when you put in that amount of stuff down, it was loose laid, as I say, it was welded. And there were put, laid, we were laying something like six and a half thousand square meters a night. You know, it's phenomenal the stuff that was going down. Um, and that's, that's the biggest job, uh, proudest job that I've got because the job was finished. There was two or three companies involved. The job was finished exactly when they wanted it finished. And, uh, you know, I suppose luckily it never got used, um, but it was all set up. They brought the gases in. You could see where the beds were going and everything. The beds were actually in and it was all fully equipped and ready to go. And, uh, you know, we only had 15 days to do that job. And as I say, about 90,000 square meters of material went down. Um, uh, all different colours are grey. As long as it were grey, all the manufacturers are selling them everything they've got on the shelf. But uh, it was coming in from polyfloor, target, girl floor, bronze are grey, 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 grey. It was like a mosaic spread of sea of grey all over the floor. <laughs> but brilliant. That was uh, that was fantastic. Yeah. I love that. And so some of the questions I was asking the podcast, I was going to ask what the best bit of advice, but I'm assuming is that... The, the bit that you stated before about the, the, the there isn't a bad job, there's just a bad price. Would you say that's the best bit of advice you've received and that's what you've lived by? Yeah, I mean, whenever I price a job, I'm never too bothered about the opposition. Um, you know, I try and, if I speak to anybody, and obviously over the years we've become friendly with a lot of large contractors, I would like to think that the large contractors try and make a realistic amount of money. So there should be very little between our prices. There's no need to cut each other's throat. There's enough work out there um, to do it without cutting each other's throat. Sadly, I've seen that creeping in, you know, and in the last sort of three months, there's been some crazy prices um, by some of the larger organisations. Um, I just can't see the reason for it. You know, um, it's doing nobody any favours at the end of the day. There's a lot of work that goes into 
preparing a quotation and um, and delivering the quote on the desk before you start doing any um, pre-site work, ordering of materials, getting materials to site, organising your labour, contracts managers, doing doubt tests and everything else that has to go into it. There's lots of, lots of effort that has to go into delivering a, a flooring job for a construction site. And that's the, you know, I, I would really like to think that well, there's always going to be somebody that stands out, but they're not going to be pricing every job. But there just seems to be, on all the large jobs at the minute, one person that's knocking it down to not worth doing, you know. And these jobs don't come around very often. And, you know, for a 750000 to in a million-pound job, you can't afford to be doing that at rock-bottom rates because, you know, it just takes you out, you know, at the end of the day. And we're walking away from it. We walk, we're, we're walking away from two or three of those jobs at the moment where we spent a lot of time and effort getting them to the stage where, we're at, where we've almost had the nod of approval and somebody's just come and pulled the rug from their feet. <laughs> no. so is that the biggest challenge you're facing, the pricing? Although you're saying it's only the last few months, but overall, it being in the flooring industry, what's been the biggest challenge you feel that you've kind of always... I'd always had, or certainly, let's say, had in the last 10 years. Well, we've always had a problem with regards to, um, we've always had a problem with regards to site conditions. And um, if we've, well, site conditions and um, making sure that um, jobs are ready. Um, you know, site managers are very good at saying jobs are ready. And when you get there, they've got, painters, electricians, and everybody in the room that you're trying to put a floor down in, you know, and it's a bit of a bit of a pain, to be fair. Um, it, it seems to be getting worse, even though you, you know, and a lot of the time to manage it, you you have somebody almost full-time on site, but even that don't work because you can only be in one place at once and when there's eight floors and 800 bedrooms and you're trying to get, you know, 40 of them done in a day, um, getting those 40 bedrooms available is very, very difficult, you know. Um, so I don't think we get the cooperation of the builders on site um, that we should do. Um, whether that's going to change, site conditions have got worse over the years. You know, when I think back to, you know, when I first came into the trade, there wasn't all this fancy vinyl going down. Um, you know, this is all sort of new development vinyl. Um, a lot of the time we were laying um, thermoplastic tiles, vinyl asbestos tiles, which uh, was probably not the best name to call them at the time because now all these schools have got vinyl asbestos tiles in them, <laughs> um, even though they carry very little danger. Um, the adhesive had more asbestos in than the tiles. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the asbestos was the worrying bit to everybody. Um, when we moved on, to, it wasn't critical that the rooms, I mean, I remember years ago when we were doing houses, we'd set the burner up and we'd have a hot plate full of water with a burner underneath it and we'd have stacks stacks of tiles laid out, probably 12 tiles in a stack, and we'd have to spin them, pack a car, boom around, get them warm so that when they went down onto the old black, um, they they stayed down. Um, and that was, and you didn't need the heat on. Then it, they brought in the vinyl and Builders were aware that you needed the heat on, so they used to get the build. They used to get the decoration. Sorry, they used to get the plumbing and um, heating on early. Now the client makes the builder pay for that, so they don't put the heating on early, and they're having to put temporary heating in, which costs them a lot of money, which they're not budgeted for. So it, they're very reluctant to give you your British standard requirements. Um, and this is now a major, major that we did. And we've just done a job recently where they said, we're not bothered about the heating. We're not bothered about the, the floors being down. Don't tell us you've got a DPM problem. Don't tell us you've got moisture in your floors. We're not interested. No, we've laid enough of these to know that we don't need to put the DPM down. So just get on and latex the floors in the cold and put your vinyl down. And we will accept all responsibility for that. We support in writing and we've done it. And they're a massive organization, this particular company. And that's the operation. That's that's what they do every job. Um, it doesn't make it very pleasant when you're trying to cut 
two mil vinyl in the cold, um, you know, because it, it's got no flexibility in it to cut it and things like that. I suppose the downside is that they don't have skirtings on, so you have got a bit of error error factor built in. Um, you know, you can pretty much freehand it and uh, and and drop it in. So it's uh, it's not going to be a neat finish because the skirting boards just clamp on the top. So no, no, I completely feel you, feel your pain with that. When when we were contracting, we used to do anywhere from I think certainly wasn't the numbers you'd be doing in in London, but sort of three hundred to four hundred thousand pounds worth of supply and fit a year in Knightsbridge, Fulham, etc. Things like that. And no matter how many times we ran ran the builder, the contracts manager, the site manager. Is this definitely plastered? Is this dry and is the heating on? We were always told, yes, it is, or it will be by Friday. Every time, we'd even turn up 24, 48 hours earlier, allow for money in the digs, and about 40% of the time, we'd end up turning around and going back 220 miles back up the road to Darlington. Um, no. So it seems to be like, you know, this is a, I was on such a small scale working with two builders just doing high-end resi work um, on a building site. And it's just like, I understand that bit's plastered, but the bit that I'm working next to it hasn't got a ceiling. And I can see the daylight coming through. You know, so I can no, feel yeah. I can feel that pain completely. Yeah, well, as I say, the job that we've just finished in Derby, uh, sorry, not your Derby Road, not your, as um, they had no glass in, you know, large panels of glass who were fitting the kitchens and, and the weather that we're having. I mean, this is the weather that we've had today in the last few days is pretty instrumental to what we've had for the last three or, three or four years at the same time. And, you know, they've got roof, the roofs are not on and we're fitting all the material. You've got like floods coming down the stairs. It's it's crazy, you know, but for some reason, the jobs do come together. The jobs come together, the jobs are handed over and uh, and the building is not at the end of it, you know, majorly, you know. Yeah. Um, a question that I've not asked before, but again, something you said earlier in the, in the podcast um, about scaling the business, about getting it to sort of new levels. One massive miss, I always moved our retained profits into a separate account um, and did that for years. And that was one thing. And I, one year I made a decision to invest that massively back into the company. I won't go completely into it with you know, the stories out there. And it went wrong. Okay, so we lost a, you know, a reasonable six-figure sum because of a few mistakes. But at that point of me reinvesting into the company, into a retail project, I had the option to buy property and I chose not to buy property and reinvest into the company. And I've got nothing wrong with reinvesting back into your company, but at that stage, I had a crossroads of going into property or going massively into residential work. So the question is, do you think by making that decision of doing some external property has helped you build the business? And if you advise someone else to do it, would you remove? Would you move retain profit in into property to give you that? I'm going to call it a safety blanket. Has that helped you over the years by just making that decision that I chose? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, when I was talking to you earlier and telling you that um, the, the the few people that had um, been doing things on the computer without me knowing, um, they very closely took us out, you know, um, because um, I was left on my own. I, I, contract managers went, estimators went, um, accounts manager went, everybody went, you know, and I'm, I'm left in this big office. What am I going to do now? Do I sink or do I swim? And, uh, you know, true to my so, sort of um, nature, I swam. And um, we retained the property, which was across the road. And I thought, what am I going to do with this huge property? Um, I'm not going to be in a position where I can maintain it. So there was, on the other side of the road, there was um, rentable um, uh, units. And uh, the builder used to buy these for, um, build them. And then he'd rent them. He'd rent them for perhaps 15 years get his money back on the build, uh, on the profit on them, and then he'd sell them. Um, but he wouldn't sell them until they're in need of almost complete renovation, recladding, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I decided that we would move across the road and rent one of these, which we did, um, sold the property, um, the large property the company owned, and reinvested that money into the business. 
and then we bought this property. Um, well, we, we moved into this property, which we rented, which we rented for about 10 years. I then went across and said to the builder, you know, are you interested in um, selling it? He said, we're only interested in selling it if the people in your next unit um, are prepared to buy as well, because it's a semi-detached unit and we won't sell one without the other. So I went to the guy next door and I said, yeah, we'd be interested in selling. He said, uh, sorry, would be interested in buying. And he said, no. He said, I, I would, but I'm about building a house at the moment on a large scale, so I haven't really got the money. But if you could finance the two um, and give me the option to buy it back after 12 months, I'll rent it off you for 12 months. So I looked at the units, and to be fair, the land, the land um, space, which I've looked into, I sat on 60% of the land, and he sat on 30% of the land. Um, and I had the other half, if you like, 60% of the land. So I sold it 30% of the property at 50% of the value. Wow. So, um, and I retained a large element of car park on the right-hand side, which I'd always got visions of building a further unit on there, um, which we did three years ago, three or four years ago, and we've now rented that out. So um, that's been really good. Uh, in building the one next door, which we were doing on, we, we built under the banner of West Build, um, we had felt a neighbour from across the road come and tap me on the shoulder and he said, could I have a word with the builder who's um, building your thing? I've noticed it going up, really impressed. Uh, um, he, he hadn't been in the inside, but um, get the door shut. <laughs> he said, uh, I've got family permission for one behind my unit and it's uh, quite big. So do you think your builder would be interested in pricing it? I said, I'm sure he would, yeah. Have you got plans and stuff? He said, who is your builder? I said, it's me. It's <laughs> so he gave me all the drawings, put the price together. Um, I sent him the quote. He accepted the quote and the quote was £450,000 to build it. So, um, and it was across the road. So it was perfect to you know, walk across the road to manage it. I subbed out the mainframe building um, and the um, cladding um, and well, everything really. And, and all we had to do was put the floors down at the end, which was brilliant and manage it. But he's had a great unit from it. It, um, it, it filled a little void as far as we were concerned at the time during COVID. And uh, it, it's proved to have been a very, very good exercise. Um, it's not something that I've tried to get into um, although, you know, I'm I'm, pa I'm a bit past that age now. You know, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm 66 day after tomorrow, and um, it's not some not something I need. I mean, I've got a few residential properties. Um, my advice to anybody that has spare money is sell your own house and move up. You know, um, retain what you've got in one house rather than to spread your your cash assets into three or four like I've got because all you're doing is increasing your liabilities of uh, tax massively. You know, you don't get taxed on one house, but you do get taxed heavily on multiple. Three beside the three beside the one. So uh, as I'm now finding out, you know, when, when I bought houses at 100,000 and they're now worth 300,000, there's a substantial amount of tax to pay a sell, uh, you know, which I've, I've got to do really because it's about pension. Um, but had I... I'd have just loaded them into one property where a main residence, then that would have just increased benefit of living in a big house. It might have had stress of paying the mortgage, et cetera, um, when I had one. <laughs> but um, but at least you've got the asset, which is going up probably 5% a year, as done since year dot, you know. Um, and, and it's whether you want 5% on... 200,000 or 5% 5 on 500,000, um, you know, that. so that's what I'd suggest to anybody. You know, if you've got the money in your own property, I would always invest it into your own 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 property and give yourself a bit more money and increase, and, and that, that way you're putting money aside to be your own benefit. Um, I love yeah. that, Cal. It's fabulous. Yeah. What we'll do is we'll go into the quick fire round, which is sort of Bit more snappy questions uh, about you and what you found out. So we've always had the best bit of advice, but what's what's the worst bit of advice do you reckon you've you've received? 
Well, the worst bit of advice was from the bank manager, as I said earlier. <laughs> yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. Well, don't do it. Yeah, he said, don't do it. This is the bank manager. You know, I mean, he, I'm still here and they're gone, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Midland Bank are no more than our HSBC, but, you know, whether you used to a bank on every major corner, um, they've now got a branch in town, um, you know, so that... That was the the biggest thing. If you've got, if you feel strong enough to um, to do something, and you can make it happen, everybody's got the everybody's got the ability to make everything happen. You know, I sit down with apprentices when the not apprentices, labourers when they're coming here, and I say, "Why are you a labourer?" You know, they'll say, "Well, you know." I said, "Well, let me tell you something. You can either be a good labourer or you can be a bad labourer. You know, if you demonstrate that you're a good labourer, you'll be noticed." If you demonstrate that you're a bad labourer, you'll keep moving from job to job. If I notice that you're a good labourer, then there'll be opportunities that open up for you and you'll be respected as part of the business. If I notice, if I notice that you're on your phone every five minutes and you're sitting down and drinking tea, then, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to be paying you. I don't like paying you for not delivering value, you know, and so that's the that, that's what I suggest to Sort of going off tangent to the question. Sorry, you'll have to delete that. No, it's absolutely fine. It's fine. Um, well, on that, on that, um, if you could only choose one, and because we get asked it all the time, if you could only subcontract your work out, or you could just employ your staff, but you could only choose one, and you were setting up again, which one would you choose, and why? Um. It's a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, it's a, in some respects, I would like. Yeah, it, it would probably be a subcontractor, you know. Um, but it would be a good subcontractor that I work with on a regular basis and had trust with, um, and he was quite happy to see the business develop. Um, I, I think um, the employed. Well, I mean, when I did have employed people, when we first set up, we were pretty much all employed with a few subcontractors. Now we're, um, we have 10 employed and probably 30 to 40 subcontractors, you know, so it, it's turned a complete wheel, really. Um, but I probably think, you know, from a financial point of view, not to have the burden of finding people work every single day and, you know, putting yourself under pressure to win work just for the sake of paying people. Um, it, it's better to win work and have a have a budget and allocate that budget to the subcontractor and give him an order for doing the work. Um, so subcontract. Brilliant, brilliant. If I gave you a £1,000 now and we're nearly one o'clock, but you have to spend it by five o'clock, what would you spend it on? Um, I'd probably get out of the pub and have a few pints. <laughs> we could have a session of a thousand quid. Um, you not, you've obviously not seen me drink. No. <laughs> what What's your favourite drink? Uh, what's, what's your tipple? Well, it's pretty much wine. Although I was down with the London guys before Christmas and had a few pints of Guinness in races, so uh, I can down a Guinness fairly quick. And uh, I like a pint of Guinness. You know, from my navy days, it was uh, it was the drink that we drank when we ran the field gun. Um, so I like a pint of Guinness, but. Uh, we drink a lot of Prosecco at home. Um, every day is a Prosecco day in my house. The, the wife loves Prosecco. And uh, if she's not got a Prosecco in her hand, then, uh, you know, there's something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. If you could employ anyone in the world at all, who would it be and why? Um, let me have a think about that one. Hang on. It can be dead or alive. It can be literally anyone in the world. Anyone in the world? Ooh. Tell you what, you, you got me on that one. Can we go back to that one? Yeah, absolutely. No problem at all. Um, if you had to change your profession completely, what would you be doing? I would like to be doing construction builder. Right. I would. Poacher turned gamekeeper. You know, I'd like to be the one that's holding the purse strings, making the attractive um, propositions, and 
screwing the bones out of subcontractors right. and making more money out of it. You know, uh, that's, you know, not necessarily in for that reason, but I just think that manage manage the jobs rather than physically do them. I mean, as a flooring contractor, you win the job, you've got to buy the materials, you've got to get the labour, you've got to get to site, you've got to visit the site, you've got to manage the job, you've got to invoice the job, you've got to chase the payments, and it's just under one umbrella. When you've got a system that's set up from one site, it, it, it seems on the outside to be um, an easier fix. Um, you know, you've got a big, big fist that you can bring down at any given point if you're not performing right, and they've always got money held. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think I'd, I'd like a go at development, not necessarily contracting necessarily. I'd like development. I'd like to buy buy land and develop, develop land. Yeah. Brilliant. And three people, you dead or alive, you would like a Guinness or a Prosecco with? Again, um, it can be but anyone at all. And who would you want at your table if you could have a choice? Jimmy Cyril. Do you remember him? No. <laughs> he was the guy that sacked me at Knox County. Ah, right, yeah. Ronnie Fenton. He was the guy that sat alongside him. <laughs> and the third one, I think Frankie Were though. Frank Worthington. Footballer. Yeah. Yeah, he was a a, a great um, footballer in my day when I was uh, supporting Leicester City. And and we had a fabulous English team, and Frankie Ware though at number nine um, was tremendous. So he's sadly dead. Um, as are Jimmy Cyril and Ronnie Fenton. So uh, yeah, I think those three would have been great. Fantastic. And where can you see Westcourt Flooring Company in five years' time if you had a magic ball? I would like to think that we will be hitting London fairly hard um with the with with the dynamic way that Carl is um and the staff that he's got down there. Um the Midlands office needs to keep doing what they do and keep developing and winning the work up here. I would possibly see us with another couple of um satellite regions um and you know um and and the business continue to prosper under Kirk and um, Carl. Yeah. yeah. And right at the minute, as the CEO, what's your least favourite part of your current position in the business? Probably having floor layers banging on my door when they should be banging on the other people's door. My door actually is top of the stairs, turn right. Other people's door is top of the, top of the stairs, through the door, turn right. So that's where they should be going. But as soon as they see me, they stick behind in and want to tell me all about stories. And uh, as you say, I can't really be too involved in everything on a day-to-day basis unless I'm involved in it. You know, there's too much going on here for me to be involved in everything. So, uh, yeah, so that that's probably the least of, the, uh, of what I enjoy. Yeah. And how do you, with, with that in mind, how do you get the best out of the senior leadership team? Because obviously you can't do everything categorically. You, you know, you, you're talented, but you can't be everywhere at once. How do you, how, how over the let's even say the last ten years, how have you brought the best out in your family members, stroke all the guys that you you employ? Yeah, we we have regular meetings. We have regular meetings. I allow them to talk. You know, it's like a headbanging room the, the room we're in now is the boardroom um they can come in here if they want to sort of um blast off they can blast off you know um about any particular thing um if there's anything i need to say it gets said um if it needs doing it gets done um if it it would disagree then they'll perhaps raise that disagreement and i'll give it some thought and uh and we'll you know we'll come to an agreement on where we need to go but uh, by giving them the opportunity of managing their own affairs um, and their own projects, um, I think is a big part of um, giving them the respect 
that they deserve to 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 run it. Because at the end of the day, I've not run all these prisons. I've not run the two million pound prison, the one and a half million pound prison. I'm not going to be running the seven hundred fifty thousand prison in York, but someone is, and they those people, whilst they're following the systems that the company's brought in, um, have to be trusted um, and to do it their way. Um, personal way in some respect. They're not all robots and they can't all do it the same way. We all deliver things slightly different. And as long as they're ultimately delivering the um, company um, requirements, then individualism is something which I encourage. Brilliant. Brilliant. And the very last question, Carl, on, on the podcast, uh, which is, I try and make it the hardest one. Um, what do you feel has held you back personally um, over the years, what, what's holding you back, Carl, is the question. Tell me back. Well, the biggest thing that held me back was getting to where we got to and having to almost rebuild it um, 20 years ago. Um, you know, uh, that was when my son was 18 um, and I was doing it on my own. And if we hadn't have had that blip at the time, I think we would have been... Um, probably twenty million pound business now, you know, yeah. um, 20, 20 million pound plus. Um, that has been the main um, main deterrent, really. So I sold it back. Um, I don't think there's anything else really that I could say on that. I think most of the things, well, everything else has been um, there's been solutions to, but that was a big problem that needed a big fix. With me, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah. Do you think that was the biggest um, lesson learned um, about trust and about you know? Do you think? Do you think that's yeah. you learn from that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's difficult these days because computers. People know know lots about computers and 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 information could be passed on, um, and it's very difficult to keep it private. Uh, if people want to want information about work, it, it's very simple just to take it, um, whether they take it and download it or they, you know, copy it or whatever. It's very simple. But, um, yeah. Um, oh, fabulous. Uh, what's the best way, if someone's listening to the podcast, wants to work with, with you or the team on any project, who or where's the best place to reach out to you guys? We're on LinkedIn quite a bit. Um, they can always contact if, if they're fitters. They can contact um, Adam Conway, who's our contracts director, um, on his email. Um, you want that? Um, yeah, by all means. If yeah, it's uh, a Conway, a Conway, C O N W A Y at Westcoats W E S T C O T E S Flooring. .co.uk. Um, he would be the f the first route. Um, you know, all subcontractors are validated when they come to us and they're issued with a subcontract um, policy, which they have to check over and sign. It just tells them the, how we operate, when we operate, how they get paid, when they get paid. And, uh, you know, there's no secrets on there. It's all open book. And um, as long as they know what that is, then they'll know what they're entering into. Um, as I say, most of the hitters out there um, think it's great and, uh, you know, that they find our payment system the best that they've been with, you know. So, uh, you know, with regard to staff, you know, um, we're, we're always looking for good guys, you know, whether that's contracts managers um, or um, estimators um, in both London and um, the Midlands. Uh, the estimators, you know, if they've got that sales technique and they can estimate and they can convert, then, you know, they, they're valuable guys and, uh, you know, we'd like to hear from them. Um, contract managers, if, they, if they've got a knowledge of the, if they've got to have a knowledge of the trade, they've got to understand that the job is hard and they've got to be prepared to run with it and deliver, you know, because, you know, that, there's no hiding place when you're running a job. Um, it, it don't take long for the phone to ring and you know it, they'll ring people will ring the contract manager three or four times the next phone call will probably be to Adam and 
the next phone call after that will probably be to Kirk. And finally, if it gets to a stage where people are ringing me, then we've done something wrong. Um, so it's really a case of dealing with the uh, dealing with the situation um, when you should. But that's the same wherever you go at work, you know. And uh, I, I'd like to think that we are um, we, we're more than happy to put the people through the training processes and um, you know and things that they need to do to 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 do well within their own um, work environment. Yeah. Fabulous. Carl, thank you so much for your time. Um, great stories, great insights, really valuable information. Thoroughly enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much for spending the time to come on and chat to me. No problem. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Trade Choice Carpet and Flooring. Who's Trade Choice Carpet and Flooring? Well, recently I've went up to their branch in Gateshead to find out exactly that. They're one of the UK's biggest independent distributors of floor coverings and products. From LVT, screens, adhesives, tools, carpets, vinyls, it's literally like an Aladdin's cave for flooring professionals. 13 branches across the UK, from Glasgow to Southampton. They've got 24-7 access on the Trade Choice website. It literally, it's bananas. So if you want to open an account, visit tradechoice.com or find their local branch. This podcast is run and produced by Cockrell & Co. To find out more information about what we do, visit cockrellandco.co.uk.